Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Gist of Freedom. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host. Ilyasa Shabazz, and today we have a special treat. The great historian from Fort Mose, Florida, Yul Anderson, will be joining us in our second segment to discuss the great work that he's doing to preserve the legacy there in Florida. But first, we're going to hear an audiobook excerpt. Last week, many of our listeners applauded author of Black Indians, Mr. William Lauren Katz, And so today we've decided to play an excerpt reading of his book. The excerpt is about 22 minutes in length, so grab your children, grab your friends, and sit around and listen to this great, great uh, excerpt. It is really um, terrific, and, you know, we are promoting the importance of history. After we play Chapter 2, entitled The Slave Revolt, you can call us at 347-324-324. 5552 and speak with the great historian activist Yul Anderson who's doing a great deal of work in Florida to preserve the legacy of Fort Mose. Again, this is the Gist of Freedom. You're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Okay, let's play the clip. Four major slave rebellions shook the South during the first half of the 19th century. For African-American communities, the leaders became legends in the tradition of Toussaint Louverture and Henri Christophe. Whites shuddered at the names. In 1800, in Henrico County, Virginia, Gabriel Prosser, 24, 6'2", with no record of resistance, plotted for months to capture Richmond. A blacksmith, taught to read by his master's wife, Prosser was a devoted student of the Old Testament. Samson was his hero. With his wife, Nanny, and his brothers, Solomon and Martin, on the night of August 30, 1800, Prosser assembled on his master's estate a force estimated at more than 900. Some carried scythes and clubs, others bayonets, and a few had guns. Prosser and his officers knowing of L'Ouverture's alliance with France, planned to spare Frenchmen and Quakers and to recruit Catawba Indians and poor whites. His strategy was to divide his forces into three columns under previously selected officers, capture Richmond's armory, and subdue the city. Believing 50,000 blacks and friends of humanity would join him, he foresaw a victory as great as the one in Haiti, A sudden storm brought floods that poured over the six miles of roads to Richmond. 
the conspirators were drenched, isolated from their target, and disheartened. Convinced heaven had spoken, they went home to wait for a better omen. The conspiracy began to unravel. Prosser and his officers were betrayed, captured, and sentenced to death. One bravely told his captors he had done for African Americans what Washington had done for Americans. I have ventured my life to obtain the liberty of my countrymen. Though federal intervention was unneeded, Governor James Monroe requested and received permission to use the federal armory at Manchester. Thus, a federal government made its first commitment to crush slave revolts. The governor's investigation claimed the Prosser plot embraced most of the slaves in and near the city, and perhaps the whole state. Governor Monroe had served in the Revolutionary Army and studied law with Thomas Jefferson. Now this former revolutionary came to interview the present one. The governor left no record of the exchange. Prosser seems to have made up his mind to die in silence, he wrote. Monroe later added, Unhappily, while this class of people exists among us, we can never count with certainty on its tranquil submission. Gabriel Prosser and thirty to forty followers were hanged at the Richmond jail. But even as they died, some whites spoke of their true spirit of heroism and utmost composure. This led to an open debate in Virginia on continuing slavery. Slaveholder John Randolph said, The accused have exhibited a spirit which, if it becomes general, must deluge the southern country in blood. They manifested a sense of their rights and a contempt of danger and a thirst for revenge which portend the most unhappy consequences. Governor Monroe believed the danger to the public posed by slave unrest is daily increasing. He corresponded with his friend, President Thomas Jefferson, about placing free black people on frontier land. In a series of secret sessions, the Virginia legislature debated ending slavery, but put off a decision. Grave warnings came from other Southerners. George Tucker wrote a popular pamphlet stating that the love of freedom is an inborn sentiment given by God to all humans from philosophers to slaves. At the first favorable moment, it springs forth and flourishes with a vigor that defies all check. Tucker wanted to free all slaves, but whites would not sacrifice so rich a treasure. The controversy provoked by Prosser's revolt reached beyond Virginia. Mississippi Governor Winthrop Sargent warned his people to expect uprisings. By 1802, northern states except New Jersey, had ended bondage. Maryland, Tennessee, and Kentucky soon made manumission, or the granting of liberty to slaves, easier. Legislatures in Maryland and Kentucky discussed gradual emancipation, but no southern state seriously considered abolishing slavery. In June 1802, a Norfolk paper published a slave woman's letter with her original spelling. White people, beware of your lives. There's a plan now forming and intended to be put in execution this harvest time. 
they are to commence and use their scythes as weapons until they can get possession of other weapons. There is a great many weapons hid for the purpose, and be you assured, if you do not look out in time, that many of you will be put to death. By October, twenty African-American rebels were in jail. In 1808, the U.S. Congress, fearful of violence from newly enslaved Africans, banned the slave trade. A new round of slave outbreaks came during the conflict between the United States and England that became the War of 1812. In January 1811, an African-American who signed himself as J.B., wrote a letter to General T.R. that was discovered in Richmond. It confirmed white fears. J.B. wrote of eighty armed rebels and urged secrecy till that fateful night. In St. John the Baptist Parish, thirty-six miles from New Orleans, that same year, what was probably the largest U.S. slave rebellion erupted. Some five hundred blacks marched toward the city from the Andrea State. They destroyed five plantations and picked up recruits along the way. Orderly companies under officers carried flags, and men walked to the beat of drums. Louisiana's governor summoned federal troops. General Wade Hampton's 600 militiamen surrounded the rebels, executed 68, and ended the revolution. During the War of 1812, slaves fled to whomever promised freedom. A U.S. officer reported, Our Negroes are flocking to the enemy from all quarters, whom they convert into troops, vindictive and rapacious. With the most minute knowledge of every bypath, they return upon us as guides. John Randolph urged his fellow Virginians to worry less about British troops and more about our safety at home. In 1816, George Boxley, a white Virginia store owner, popular among African Americans, led a slave revolt. Believing the distinction between rich and poor was too great, he recruited white assistants in Fredericksburg and Richmond. When his plan was betrayed, Boxley managed to escape, but six black rebels were executed. In 1822, Denmark Vesey, a Charleston carpenter, conspired to seize the city. Beasy was a slave until he won a lottery in 1800 and used the winnings to purchase his freedom. He found, though, he was not allowed to buy his family's freedom. A leading member of the Hampstead African Methodist Church, Beasy had also traveled widely in the Caribbean and read everything he could find about slavery and Haiti. Louverture's success and the biblical tale of the Hebrews' rescue excited Vesey and his co-plotters. In 1821, when Whites closed his Hampstead church, Vesey felt it was high time for us to seek for our rights. If we are only unanimous and courageous, as the San Domingo people were, Vesey said, we were fully able to conquer the Whites. Vesey calculated that a bold strike in Charleston would send eager blacks from nearby plantations rushing to him. Slave masters would flee, and their empire would collapse. The plotters discussed fleeing to Africa or the Caribbean if their plan failed, 
but specific transportation was not arranged. By May, Beasy recruited an estimated six to nine thousand. Now the plot became vulnerable to informers, and by early June, whites had penetrated it. On June 22nd, Beasy and other leaders were arrested by state authorities. Governor Thomas Bennett quickly requested federal aid. Secretary of War Calhoun, a South Carolina slaveholder, dispatched federal artillery troops from St. Augustine to South Carolina. He did not inform the president, though only the president of the United States has the constitutional power to send federal troops into states. Conspirators were dealt with quickly. Of Vesey's band, 35 were hanged, 42 exiled, and four whites were convicted of aiding the conspiracy. On the gallows, the doomed shouted out to keep revolt alive. Federal troops stood by to quell any rescue effort by the African-American community. The last major slave revolt, organized by Nat Turner in 1831, shook the foundations of slavery in Southampton, Virginia, and throughout the South. Turner, at 30, was a slave whom whites had always considered a quiet, contented man. Then one night, he had a vision that his duty was to end bondage. Deeply religious and a country lay preacher on Sundays, Turner was respected far and wide for his piety and leadership. Turner set about his new task, picking early morning as the time of revolution. On August 22nd, with 60 to 80 men, most on horseback, Turner led his forces toward the county seat of Jerusalem and its store of arms and ammunition. In the next 40 hours, Turner and his men spared a poor white family, but slew 57 to 65 white masters and their families. Federal troops from Fort Monroe, the Navy ships Warren and Natchez near Norfolk, and the Hampton with three artillery companies were rushed to Southampton. U.S. Marine guards and sailors from the Warren and Natchez marched through the county to announce a federal presence and terrify any African Americans thinking of joining Turner's rebellion. A vast roundup began, but Turner escaped capture by hiding in the woods. He finally walked out and surrendered. Sentenced to death, Nat Turner reminded his captors that Christ had been crucified and calmly went to the gallows. The revolt's slayings were soon surpassed by those of white vigilantes. With torch and rifle, fanatical men swooped down on black communities throughout the countryside. An estimated 200 men, women, and children were slain, most with no connection to the rebellion. Reprisals reached counties besides Southampton and states beyond Virginia. The best and the brightest was killed in Nat's time, recalled Charity Bowery, a slave in Edenton, North Carolina. African Americans celebrated Old Prophet Nat by singing, You can't keep the world from turning round, or Nat Turner from gaining ground. For whites, Turner was their worst nightmare in flesh and blood. One slaveholder admitted, I have not slept without anxiety in three months. Our nights are sometimes spent in listening to noises.
Nat Turner died on the gallows, but his ghostly spirit hovered above every Southerner. Slaveholder James McDowell told the Virginia legislature the uprising raised the suspicion that a Nat Turner might be in every family, that the same bloody deeds might be acted over at any time in any place, that the material for it was spread throughout the land and always ready for a like explosion. Mrs. Lawrence Lewis, niece of George Washington, wrote about a smothered volcano. We know not when or where the flame will burst forth, but we know that death in the most horrid forms threatens us. Some have died. Others have become deranged. Southern legislatures voted their fears. Since Turner read and preached, laws were passed against black preachers and banning the teaching of slaves. To see you with a book in your hand, they would almost cut your throat, recalled one slave. Laws were passed in many southern states that made manumission of slaves almost impossible. One Virginia legislator spoke of his goal for slaves. We have, as far as possible, closed every avenue by which light might enter their minds. If you could extinguish the capacity to see the light, our work would be completed. They would then be on a level with the beasts of the field, and we should be safe. The massacres carried out in the wake of Turner's revolt were designed to terrorize black communities. However, two mutinies on the slave-trading ships showed even terror had its limitations. In 1839, Joseph Chinque, son of an African king, led 54 Africans being transported to the New World in a revolt aboard the Amistad. The Africans tried to steer back to their homeland, but treacherous white crewmen guided the ship toward the Connecticut coast. Interned at first, Chinque and his men were finally freed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Former President John Quincy Adams served as their volunteer lawyer. In 1841, Madison Washington led a mutiny of 19 on the Creole, sailing from Hampton Roads, Virginia, with a cargo of 135 slaves for New Orleans. Washington and his people sailed to the Bahamas. They were warmly welcomed there by fellow Africans who sailed out in small boats to surround a liberated Creole. The end of the 18th century had brought models of successful revolutions against tyranny to the Americas, but it also brought profound changes to slave communities. They were no longer dominated by people who had lived or been fighters in Africa or who were steeped in its cultures. Slaves remained powerless, uneducated, and unarmed in the 19th century, while U.S. industrial might and military power soared. Slaveholders' surveillance over and brutality toward slaves rose. Pioneer families settled in the hills and backcountry that might once have been home to maroon colonies. New roads were built and trains reached into frontier regions. These opened a continent to whites and closed it to rebel slaves. The year after Nat Turner and his men were executed, the U.S. Army began to round up the five civilized nations at Bayonet Point for a forced march to the deserts of Oklahoma. 
these great Native American nations that once provided a refuge for fugitives in the heart of the South were gone. Even as African-American rebels conspired, they knew their enemies were gaining on them, and their escape hatches were disappearing. The defeats of Prosser, Vesey, and Turner highlighted painful truths. Slaves realized that they were surrounded by Southerners who grew up with guns and were capable, in response to resistance, of unlimited racial brutality. Heavily armed militias stood prepared for the first alarm of revolt. Unarmed slaves saw they could be overwhelmed by disciplined, experienced troops with concentrated firepower. Any attempt at resistance would bring certain and immediate destruction, said slave Lunsford Lane, wise from seeing many uprisings fail. The men who fought with Prosser, Vesey, and Turner learned that powerful forces waited in distant ambush. Behind local militias stood the awesome military potential of the United States government. Its marching orders came from pro-slavery politicians. But the revolutionary upsurges of 1776, 1789, and 1791 fueled black hope and nerve. During Prosser's revolt, slaveholders warned that this new-fangled French revolutionary philosophy of liberty and equality meant trouble. They called slaves clearly the Jacobins of the country, the anarchists and the domestic enemy. Masters knew that faith in a black liberator, despite all the police and propaganda, was a strong force in slave huts. The Haitian Revolution, as Thomas Jefferson wrote, appears to have given considerable impulse to the minds of the slaves. Denmark Vesey originally timed his uprising to take place on the French Revolution's Bastille Day. Nat Turner originally chose the 4th of July. Prosser planned for his armies to carry a banner reading, Liberty or Death, the slogan of liberator Louverture, into Richmond. Ties of history and blood linked Haiti and enslaved Americans. Prosser, Vesey, and Turner talked of Louverture's military genius and political success. Vesey, one of his men said, was in the habit of reading to me all the passages in the newspaper that related to San Domingo. For generations, Florida's African-American Maroons had traded with Haiti. A leader in Louisiana's huge 1811 rebellion was a free black from Haiti, Charles de Londe. African insurrections in Haiti, South and Central America, and in the United States sealed the doom of the African slave trade. Between 1807 and 1820, European governments banned the importation of Africans as a threat to white safety. In 1833, England ended bondage in its overseas colonies. Slave insurrections also created a new problem for slaveholders. In crushing rebels, they were forced to reveal the uncharitable and undemocratic character of a system committed to cruelty. With their whips, chains, and fire, they stood exposed as petty and reckless tyrants. To battle their human property, they were fully prepared to undermine both white constitutional rights 
and the will of the majority. To protect their investments, slaveholders demanded greater control over Congress and the presidency. They were no longer able to pose as kindly Christian civilizers. Increasingly, they appeared to fellow citizens as a violent force that scoffed at democratic traditions and threatened the peace. Kiss of Freedom, you're listening online at blackhistoryblog.com and on iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. I'm your host, Ilyasa Shabazz, and that was an excerpt from Chapter 2, The Slave Revolt, from William L. Taft. His book is Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage, the Native American and African American alliance that for four centuries challenged the European conquest and slavery into the 21st century. And it brings to mind something that another one of our beloved historians said of my father, which I'll paraphrase for those enslaved Africans that were just mentioned. He mentioned Denmark Vesey. He mentioned Nat Turner. He mentioned all of those who endured this psychological um, you know, trauma. Uh, he, he said something like, we may have buried the bodies of the enslaved Africans, the Native Americans and those slave abolitionists, but we've not buried the spirit. We've not buried the teachings. We've not buried the legacy. If we both hear this information, this history, and heed to the richness of our heritage, we'll make a world better for our children and their children and still the more beautiful ones not yet born. We must keep these voices alive, those shoulders upon which we all stand today, who cultivated the lands while enduring generational lifetimes of the impossible. And it brings us to our other guest this evening, Mr. Yo Anderson. Mr. Yo Anderson, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Good. Now, are you in um, Florida right now? Uh, yes, I'm in Florida. Actually, I'm in Miami now. You're in Miami. Okay. Well, I know that you are preserving some great legacies there in uh, Fort Moe. Can you tell us a little about it, about your work? Yes. Uh, the Fort Moe Project um, actually started with the Viva Florida 500 campaign. Basically, that was celebrating the 500-year discovery of Florida by Ponce de Leon in 1513. And my efforts in Fort Mose was basically to say that since there was 500 years of Spanish history in Florida, and we know that they brought African slaves with their crew, that we also wanted to celebrate 500 years of African history here in Florida, and we chose Fort Mose as the site of our celebration. Okay, Fort Mose. Now, can you tell us some of the some of the work that the enslaved Africans managed to contribute? Uh, yes, uh, it's very interesting. I was listening to your clip, and a lot of your clip stems with the 1800s and the late 1700s. And the Fort Mose African history actually starts actually in about 1525, um, almost 100 years before any of the documented um, African slave revolts happened um, up in the um, formal, you know, shaping of the United States of America. Uh, 
in Florida is before a lot of the Georgetown, Virginia, and Jamestown history. So basically what happened along the South Carolina rice um, plantations, mm-hmm. which was documented back in the 1525, a lot of the slaves who fled uh, the Carolina slave plantations actually fled south down to Florida. And so the Spanish king at that time, as early as the 1500s, 1525, was basically granting African slaves freedom um, if they reached the Spanish colonies, adopted Catholicism, and agreed to fight for Spain against, you know, the the, the British at the time. So, So basically enough slaves began to migrate south that the Spanish king created an outpost and a small African community called Fort Mose, and that is basically how Fort Mose was created. Wow. Okay. Now, the enslaved Africans, so once they got to this area in Florida, because I think Mr. Cass was talking about this, once they they reached this area in Florida, they were given their freedom. And how, yes. long, and, and how long did they manage to hold on to this freedom? Well, the very interesting part was they were able to hold on to the treaty. Um, they were able to hold on to their freedom until the, um, until the treaty with um, the, the United States with um, President Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking almost up through the mid-1700s, up to maybe 1745, 1750, I believe, um, and at that time, slaves and Indians had been, you know, intermarrying and intermingling um, for almost 200 years before um, Andrew Jackson came down and created the Indian Wars and started the Tears of Fear, uh, the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the largest slave rebellions actually took place um, in St. Augustine, in Florida, um, in the 1700s, and. Um, that's all documented at the uh, museum at Fort Mose. Okay, and where is, uh, tell me the name of the museum in Fort Mose. Well, it, it's actually called the Fort Mose Historic State Park. So it's part of the state park system here in the state of Florida. Okay, okay. Are you working with other educators in those schools on, on these uh, preservation? Well, the most interesting thing that we discovered about Fort Mose is that a lot of the historical findings are actually coming out of um, Latin America, out of Cuba, out of Brazil, out of Colombia. And one of the um, historians named Professor Jane Landers is from Vanderbilt University, and she and York, um, some professors from York University out of Toronto and a couple of the other um, professors out of Brazil and Columbia have received uh, some very large grants to digitize a lot of the um, religious um, historical artifacts that have been documenting a lot of the African baptisms Mm -hmm. um, and purchases and sales that have allowed us to go back um, to the 1500s and document the African presence here um, on the continent of the United States of America. Wow. Okay, can and, you rec- – mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah, I was about to say that the Vanderbilt University Project, uh, you can probably find it online. Uh, it's the Ecclesiastical 
and secular um, center for slave societies and studies. And they have more than 120,000 digitized images dating back to the 1500s. Wow. It's not early. So, and they have images of the enslaved Africans? Yes, as well as documentation that proves their existence, purchase and sales, baptisms, mm-hmm. marriages. It's a very, very interesting undertaking. Okay. I, you know, I know I just looked at this. Maybe this was on um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates' uh, program. He might have this bit of um, this, this in, in his last week's segment. Now, can you recommend any other resources or books, movies, documentaries, or points of interest for folks to learn more about Fort Mose? Well, um, there's been a lot of books written about it, and any one of your listeners can just Google Fort Mose books, and you'll be able to find a lot of historical artifacts. And, you know, people pretty much have discovered the historical significance of St. Augustine, St. Augustine being the oldest free settlement of Africans in the continental United States before the formation of the 13 colonies or the, you know, formation of the United States of America. So the historical significance about Fort Mose and St. Augustine um, is one that African Americans should revere and go visit. So you can find a lot more people um, getting on the bandwagon and writing books and and doing, you know, documentaries like Henry Louis Gates' documentary, um, which appropriately did um, identify Fort Mose as, you know, one of the original historical um, sites for Africans having landed on the continental United States. I see. Well, can you tell tell us what would we see if we were to visit Fort Mose today? Well, one of the things about Fort Mose, it was overrun and burned and, and, and demolished uh, about two or three times. So today what you would find is a large, beautiful um, swath of land of about 20 acres um, on the inlet leading to St. Augustine, um, and you would find a museum. You would find artifacts of cooking and pottery um, indicating that, you know, African people were existing on that site, and you would find a very much state-of-the-art museum um, located there on the facility. Okay, and so you and so it's very clear that this was, um, well, actually they weren't enslaved Africans; they were they were free Africans. So is, is it very clear that they that the people who were living there were of the African diaspora? Oh, absolutely. Um, we just did a festival there this past October, and uh, a lot of the Africans did come from West Africa. A lot of them Mandingos. Um, a lot of them came from uh, the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, um, mm-hmm. from Ghana. And we had a lot of, um, this past October, we were celebrating that cultural heritage um, at Fort Mose by bringing over some um, African leaders and some dancers and performers and trying to recreate a feeling of an African village mm-hmm. uh, for people to experience when they came to the fort uh, this past October. Wow, that's really terrific. Um, so what do you envision for Fort Mose in the future? Any expansions? Well, one of the things is to um, just remember that it is a Florida State Park. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to change it significantly, you know, is uh, managed by the, the State Department 
for the state of Florida. So now we pretty much um, understand what that means. There is a plan to try to put an earthen mound on the ground so that people could, you know, see the reenactment of what a potential, you know, battle might have been like, um, you know, and basically have reenactors at the location. But one of the things that we do understand is that that's sacred ground for us. And so, you know, for us personally, we weren't trying to, you know, change the land in any way or try to dig up anything, but more than just honoring the presence and the significance of Africans who lived and died there and yeah. then celebrating that history. Mm-hmm. How can our listeners support Fort Mose? Well, one of the things, of course, is to try to get people to visit the park more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very minimal um, admittance fee to the mm-hmm. museum. It's only $2.00. Um, but one of the things to do is to try to understand that uh, Ben Augustine carries a lot of rich historical significance for African Americans, even beyond uh, Fort Mose. It is the site where Andrew Young was um, almost killed um, during the civil rights struggle. Um, it's the site of a lot of historical civil rights movements. Um, and this year, 2014, they'll be celebrating the civil rights 50th anniversary uh, year of the signing of the Civil Rights uh, Bill in St. Augustine. And so once you go to Fort Mose, it's almost like going on a freedom trail if you've been to Boston before and you follow yeah. the freedom trail. And so what you do there is you just follow the freedom trail from Fort Mose into one of our um, cities called Lincolnville where a lot of those Africans created a small city, a community. And then you follow the civil rights struggle. You go to the historical churches. You go to the historical grave site, and, and you can see the, the contributions and, and why um, St. Augustine um, holds a, a historical significance uh, for African Americans. And so um, I highly recommend that people go visit if they can. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, well, do you have any parting words for other preservationists and genealogists or anyone who wants to visit and uh, learn more about um, Fort Mose, because I, I know a lot of people don't know about Fort Mose or St. Augustine, the significance, um, historical significance of St. Augustine. Is there a website? Um, you know, you the, the, yeah, well, my, my website is called uh, the Fort Mose African Market. Can you spell uh, that, please? Uh, that's F-O-R-T-M-O-S-E. African Market, and okay. so that's one website. Um, the other one is that they could just type in, uh, you know, Fort Mose, and they could pretty much, you know, identify with whatever comes up online, um, and then they can also type in the National Park Service um, for the state of Florida and type in Fort Mose as well, and mm-hmm. they'll be able to get more information, and once you type it in, I'm certain many items will come up. I mean, you know, black cultural tourism is a hot-button topic right now. And so St. Augustine is one of the prime places where black cultural tourism is being developed. So you'll find a lot of hits um, related to St. Augustine when you Google Fort Mose. Okay. Okay. Um, Well... How can our listeners support you or 
Fort Mose, is there anything that you would like to leave us with? Well, what, one of the things that I do in my work is um, I'm a futurist, and I try to highlight African, African-American contributions anywhere around the planet I can find it. And this July in Orlando, we'll be putting together some, a mini-conference at the World Future Society Conference in Orlando, and we'll be focusing on the future of African-Americans after 2016. Excellent. And we will be putting together some what-if scenarios for our future development, for our future social economic development, and we welcome anyone who wants to participate in those sessions and, you know, just get in the foray of planning for a better future for African Americans in this country and around the planet. Yes, yes. Very good. Excellent. And uh, Mr. Anderson, Yule and Anderson, can you again share with us your website, any way for our listeners to contact you? You can reach me on my email at yul69 at yahoo.com. And okay, you can that's, that's yul six nine sixty nine. Yes, at yahoo.com. Um, you can also reach me at um, info at Fort Mosaic Market. You can reach me at info at African American Future Society. Or you can reach me on my uh, website at www.fortmosaicafricanmarket.com. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have you. You're listening to The Gist of Freedom saying be well, be loved, and stand in the knowing. God bless you. Goodbye.